Mark 1, 14 through 45. Exactly. The topic we're going to find there, Jesus calls two sets of brothers to go with him and fish for men. The title of our message, Go Fish. Let's pray. Father, we do want to learn what you taught these early disciples about being fishers of men. We want it to be encouraging and strengthening, refreshing. At the same time, Lord, we want to just sit under the ministry of the Holy Spirit and receive a fresh infilling of his uh, love and empowering to do the work that you've called us to do. As we work through these verses, Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher, you would be our guide. We would understand what they meant in the first century and what they mean in every century. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It was a cold winter day when an old man walked out onto a frozen lake, cut a hole in the ice, dropped in his fishing line, and began waiting for fish to bite. He was there for a long time without even a nibble when a young boy walked out onto the ice, cut a hole in the ice, not too far from the old man, and dropped in his fishing line. It took only about a minute, and wham, a fish hit the hook, and the boy reeled it in. The old man couldn't believe it, but he figured it was just dumb luck. The boy dropped in his line and again, within just a minute or so, pulled in another fish. This went on and on until finally the old man couldn't take it anymore since he hadn't caught anything in all this time. He went to the boy and said, son, I've been here for over an hour without even a nibble. You've been here only a few minutes and you've caught about half a dozen fish. How do you do it? The boy looked at him and said, What was that, the old man asked. Again, the boy responded, (laughs) Look, said the old man, I can't understand the words you're saying. So the boy spit into his hand and said, You have to keep the worms warm. (laughs) Fishermen are definitely enthusiastic about their pastime. And some of you aren't laughing. You're thinking, yeah, of course. As a segue, seven of the original 12 disciples of Jesus were fishermen, not shepherds as you might have thought, seeing there are so many references to that occupation surrounding the Lord. Why fishermen? Well, I don't know exactly, but the Lord at least could explain that following him was like fishing for men. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, when you follow Jesus, you embark on a lifetime of fishing for men And number two, when you follow Jesus, you enroll in lessons on fishing for men. Let's take a look at embarking on a lifetime of fishing for men. Now, I've been fascinated by something we discovered last week in our study of the opening verses. Unique to the Gospel of Mark is his characteristic of writing from what scholars call the historical present. It's a literary technique that makes it appear you are right there as the story is being told. Do you know what an embedded journalist is? That's when a reporter is attached to a unit in combat to give eyewitness reports of the action. They're right there in the action. We are to read Mark as if we were embedded with Jesus and his disciples. And if you remember that and remind yourself of that, we'll make this gospel a lot more exciting than it already is. Now, we pick up the action here after Jesus was both water baptized and spirit baptized, and after he defeated Satan in the 40-day wilderness temptation. Verse 14 says, Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
If you were looking at a timeline of the life of Jesus, you'd see that Mark skips ahead about a year, saying nothing about what happened between Jesus' 40-day temptation in the wilderness and the beginning of his public preaching and teaching nearly a year later. Scholars sometimes call that first year the year of obscurity. Some significant things happened. They're mentioned in John's gospel. But Jesus did not really burst onto the scene preaching the kingdom of God. After his baptisms and after blackening the devil's eye, I'd have thought it was the perfect moment to come from the wilderness preaching. God has a much different way of doing things than we do. He let all of that die down before Jesus comes back on the scene. And so all I'm saying is that we constantly remind ourselves that God works in ways that need to be discovered rather than assumed. Now, what is the gospel? You might say it is Jesus himself since he is the one who was promised to come and deal with sin so that men might be saved. It is the person and work of Jesus by which believing sinners can be declared right with God. It is him dying on the cross as our substitute, then rising again on the third day to draw all men to himself and to offer everyone the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. The gospel as it relates to the kingdom of God is described in verse 15. He said, the time is fulfilled and the gospel of God is at hand, uh, and the kingdom of God is at hand rather, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the kingdom of God Jesus was proclaiming is the visible earthly kingdom that God promised Israel. How is it that the time for offering the kingdom was fulfilled? The exact day the Messiah would make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem was known, or at least it could have been known, and it was now not far off. It was a date that had been set by Daniel some 500 years earlier in his famous prophecy of the 70 weeks. And again, it has been calculated by scholars uh, and it could have been calculated by Jewish scholars uh, because of the time reference that Daniel gave. There was an exact moment, an exact day on the calendar that Jesus would make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's the day we call Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, hailed as king, and it was coming quickly. This momentous occasion should encourage everyone to repent and believe in the gospel. And by the way, have you done that? Have you repented and believed in Jesus Christ? There's always non-believers in every crowd. And many times folks who think that they are believers, who believe in God, but they've never really confessed their sin, never really repented of their sin, never really been born again. I pray that the Holy Spirit would minister to each of our hearts that we would know that we know that we've encountered the living God in Jesus Christ, that he has died in your place so that you can be saved forever. If that's not true of you, then God has brought you to this place so that you would receive him and the forgiveness of sins. And let the Holy Spirit minister that grace to you today. Verse 16 goes on. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Now these fishermen, two sets of brothers, already knew Jesus. 
Andrew had been a follower of John the Baptist. When John pointed out Jesus as the Messiah, Andrew took Simon to meet Jesus. Simon, by the way, is Peter. And that's probably what I'm going to call him throughout, so don't get confused. As for James and John knowing Jesus, I quote, from a comparison of Matthew 27 with Mark 15, it may be assumed that Zebedee's wife's name was Salome, and further comparison with John 19 indicates that she was the sister of the mother of Jesus, so James and John were Jesus' cousins. During the year of obscurity I mentioned, Jesus gathered his first five disciples, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and Bartholomew. He traveled with those guys to Galilee, where he performed the first of the signs recorded in John's gospel, changing water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Afterwards, the disciples returned to their own homes, where they resumed their normal lives until the calling that we witness here. There's obviously a lot we could say about this call to discipleship, but there are three things I want to draw out for our consideration. First, when Jesus says, I will make you become fishers of men, Jesus was not calling them to the office of apostle. He would choose his 12 apostles later out of a larger group. These guys would be part of it, but this is not their call to apostleship. That means this statement is applicable to all believers. To follow Jesus means you and I are fishers of men. It's not a special gifting that only a few, such as evangelists, have from God. It is the normal Christian life. I want you to hold that thought for a moment while we look at a second and a third thing. When Jesus says, I will make you become fishers of men, it implies that it is something he will do. Make means that it's his work. It's something he is doing in us. Become indicates it's going to take time and that it's going to continue over time. Which brings us to a rather interesting third thing. Notice that Andrew and Peter were casting a net into the sea while James and John were in the boat mending their nets. I think their jobs that day and their description have significance, and here's what I mean. The first two brothers were casting a net. Andrew introduced Peter to Jesus, or as we might say it today, Andrew brought Peter to the Lord. Peter would go on to do great evangelistic work, preaching, for example, on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people got saved. Later, he would bring the gospel to the Gentiles, preaching to the household of Cornelius and see that whole household saved and an entire people group opened. Thus, Andrew and Peter were netcasters, not just by the Sea of Galilee in their fishing business, but in their ministry of catching people for Jesus Christ. We would say that they were evangelists, catching people for the Lord. James and John were mending nets when called by the Lord. While we can't say much about James, since very little is written about him and since he wrote no letters, John was certainly a mender in his ministry, always preaching the love and unity of the brethren in his letters. It's only an observation, but putting all of this together, I think we can say that every follower of Jesus can expect a lifetime of being made into a fisher of men according to your own unique bent, personality, and gifting. And so when I say, when I say we are all to be fisher men, uh, fishers of men, 
It doesn't mean that we're all called to be evangelists in the sense that we normally think of it. We're all called to do the work of an evangelist from time to time in sharing the gospel. But all of us have different gifts, different talents, different abilities in the body of Christ. And the Lord works on us and in us and through us to put all of that together in a fellowship of believers so that the gospel is forwarded. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, no one's calling you to be the next Billy Graham. But the Lord says, the way I have gifted you and where I have placed you, you can grow in your ability to share the gospel and to bring men and women to Christ. And so the question for us today is this, how avid a fisher of men are you? Whether you are more an evangelist or more an encourager, wherever you are on that spectrum, is fishing for men, that is serving Jesus, your one true passion in life? Serving the Lord in such a way that others are brought to Christ. Love what you do, just do it as unto the Lord. Make sure people know that he is your reason for getting up each day and doing what you do. Always be casting or always be mending with the time and talent and things God has given you. Whatever it is you do, think of Jesus saying to you today, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men because it's a work that is ongoing. That's what he's asking you. That's what he's saying to you. What would that look like tomorrow? What would it look like if we heard the Lord saying to us today, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men? What would that look like tomorrow? Let the Lord show you, maybe in our reflection time this after service, and give you some... Uh, Thoughts and maybe even strategy on how where you work or where you go to school or in your neighborhood, you can have a greater testimony for Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 21 through 45, when you follow Jesus, you enroll in lessons on fishing for men. If you're going to make guys become fishers of men, they're going to need lessons. Think of the rest of this chapter as fishers of men 101. And so verse 21, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. For the sake of the first fishing lesson, look also at verse 38 where we're told uh, Jesus said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. Jesus said he came to preach and to teach. When he did, he spoke with an authority folks were not used to. So this was his number one priority. People always ask the difference between preaching and teaching. When they do, I recommend they listen to a week worth of Dr. J. Vernon McGee's regular Through the Bible radio programs. How many of you are familiar with J. Vernon McGee? Almost everybody in the world is. Then tune in to the Sunday broadcast. Most of us have never heard him preach on Sunday. And there's a decided difference in the way he teaches the word of God and the way he preaches the word of God. And to me, it's the best example of the difference, better than anything I could say. First priority of fishing for men, speak the word of God with authority. Now, we're going to see Jesus try hard in this chapter to stay on task despite folks pressing upon him for healings and deliverance from demons. He did those things in abundance, but his mission was the gospel that changes hearts, not just bodies. He believed that it was the gospel that was the power of God unto salvation. And, and so keep that in mind. I don't think we can ever uh, get tired of being reminded 
of the priority of preaching and teaching the word of God. Because that's always where the attack comes. That's where the skeptic attacks. That's where the liberal attacks. That's where some Christians attack. I remember years ago, there was a movement within Calvary Chapel, our affiliation of churches, small movement towards a more of a Pentecostal bent. And the guys started a, a thing where they said that Calvary Chapel believes in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible indicating that there wasn't enough spiritual activity in the churches. Whether or not that was true or not, it gives you an indication of how Christians can get off task. There, what's wrong with the Bible? There's a, a thought that some people have that if you, if you teach too much of the Bible, you'll cancel out the ministry of the Holy Spirit who, after all, inspired the Bible. And so we want to always emphasize above all else the teaching and the preaching of the word of God because that's what Jesus did. We're going to see Jesus try hard, so look for that. Verse 23, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Calling it their synagogue tells us that this man was a visitor. A demon picked a really bad day to visit the synagogue. The us and the we make it sound like he was possessed by more than one demon, but the original words don't really support that. And besides, the demon goes on to say, I know who you are. Unclean speaks to him of being vulgar and immoral and gross. Jesus told him, be quiet. I find that interesting because so often among those who practice exorcisms, they claim that you must get the demon talking, especially the demon needs to tell you its name. Then they apply a whole bunch of spells and incantations and holy water and things like that. I don't know if you've ever seen The Exorcist. I, I'm not recommending it. I saw it when I was younger, it scared me half to death. I don't know if it'd be scary anymore. But since then, there have been a number of Hollywood movies and television movies about uh, real exorcisms, the accounts of exorcisms that actually took place. And I'm sure they're accurate in terms of everything that happened. But what happens in these real exorcisms, there's a lot of dialogue, a lot of talking to the demon, there's a lot of holy water whenever there's you know, a, a moment of, of you know, they got to hit them with holy water so that they burn and cuss at you. And um, there's a lot of levitation. There's all, I mean, it's all this stuff going on and there's a lot of reading from exorcist books and all that. And finally, the demon ex is exercised. Well, of course, uh, a lot of the more modern ones, the priest is killed first uh, and, and then you know, somebody else comes. And it's this whole thing. Now, I'm, I'm telling you, those, those experiences are real. Those things really happen, but I think it's just demons messing with these guys. Because when Jesus encountered demons, I don't even think he raised his voice in this. You know, when, when we read this, we say, come out of him! I think Jesus looked and said, hey, would you be quiet? And would you come out of him, please? I, I'm teaching the word here. And, and he did. And that's where the people were astonished because they'd never seen anything like that before. They knew about exorcisms. They just had never seen one like that. I think demons just mess with you and they lull you into thinking that the power is in the ritual and the words spoken in Latin with holding a cross with holy water ready to jam them. 
and, and they're, just, they're just messing with you. You know, we just studied Revelation, right? <laughs> when those demons come out of the pit, you could have all the whole, you could have vats full of holy water and they're just gonna drink it down and attack you. I mean, you know, demons, you know, we'll talk more about demons in a minute. Verse 27, then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. As I said, exorcisms were not new. Jesus' almost nonchalant manner and the obvious authority he had over the demon, that was new. Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness in one-on-one, your champion against my champion combat. Every time he encountered a demon or demons, plural, he commanded them and they obeyed him. In the language of the Gospels, we would say that Jesus bound the strong man. He bound Satan so that he could plunder the strong man's house. He was delivering people from the kingdom of darkness to enter the kingdom of God that he had come to establish. The question is, is Satan bound today? Sadly, the answer to that is no. I don't think there's any rational Christian who would say the devil is bound today and he's not causing any problems. That's just not true. Uh, you, you, You really can't talk to a person like that because they're not being honest. Because Jesus' offer of the kingdom was rejected, the establishing of the kingdom on the earth was delayed until Jesus' second coming. In the meantime, Satan is loose. He's on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour as the ruler of the kingdom of darkness. And so what is the fishing lesson for us here? Well, it is for us to remember that although loose and fierce, Satan is fighting from defeat. Though he may yet hinder and obstruct us in many ways, though he holds men captive to do his will, we do not fear him or what he can do. We continue to persevere and press forward despite all obstacles. People seem really troubled as to why we don't encounter demons and demon possession more often since it was so prevalent when Jesus was on the earth. All I can say is, that's just fine with me. I'm not anxious. I'm in no hurry for us to confront demons. But if we do, we can know that they are defeated. And this is really huge. Satan is still the god of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler over demonic forces. But his fate is sealed and we battle from victory, not for victory, pressing on, persevering, no matter the opposition. Verse 29, now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John, Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she served them. So the boys came home from synagogue after facing a demon, expecting a hot meal only to find that Peter's mom had a raging fever and the way it's described in the text is is that it it may have even been life-threatening. Not a problem, Jesus healed her. Fishing lesson number two, bad things happen to God's people. In fact, God's people are singled out for attack by the enemy trying to stop or at least slow down the work of the gospel. And so while this demon is confronting Jesus in the synagogue as a distraction almost, uh, there is a disease situation going on at Peter's house where his mother-in-law is about to be killed with a fever. You're going to need a strong theology of suffering in order to go fishing. Lots of terrible things are going to happen around you, 
to people you love and to you. Now, it gives me no pleasure to say that, but you need to hear that, I need to hear that. So many people are stumbled and offended in their Christian life when bad things happen to them. They immediately wonder, what happened? Am I not serving God? Am I in sin? And then once they work through that, they think, what is God doing? Why would God do this, et cetera, et cetera? You need to have a strong theology of suffering. Have a, a, a right view of the world we live in, which is a fallen world. The kingdom has not been established yet. There's a warfare going on and, and terrible things are happening. However, the worst thing that could happen to us is what? You'd be killed for the sake of the gospel or that you would die and what, what does that mean? You're absent from the body and you're present with the Lord. And so there's, there's only victory uh, at the end of all of these struggles, but you're going to need this theology of suffering. Now, wait a minute, you say, Jesus healed Peter's mom, so isn't that the lesson here that we should be healed? Well, no, it isn't. In another episode in the Gospels, Jesus is going to be delayed by his father from healing Lazarus. Lazarus is going to die. It was so terrible that even Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. But then you say, well, yeah, but he raised Lazarus from the dead. So that's ultimately, you know, the answer. You know, Lazarus died again. I've often joked with you, but I think it's true. If you're Lazarus, you don't want to be raised from the dead. If you die, stay dead because you're where you want to be. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. He was in paradise, hanging around with the boys, Moses and Abraham and Elijah and Elisha and all those guys, asking him all the questions that he had. And then all of a sudden he hears Jesus' voice, Lazarus, Lazarus, oh, Lord, really? I got to hop out of the grave in my grave clothes and live? And you know, the religious leaders are going to try and kill me. It wasn't, it's no fun to be uh, raised from the dead like that, to die again. And so uh, this is about our suffering now to reign later. The kingdom Jesus came offering, the Jews got rejected. The world we live in has fallen. The problem of pain, as C.S. Lewis called it, is something you always need to factor in. Verse 32, at evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Legalistic Jews that they were, they waited until the Sabbath ended to travel and to see a work of healing or an exorcism performed. Again, please note, he did not allow the demons to speak. If you ever do encounter a demon, don't talk to it. I've seen Christian exorcists say that you need to get the name of the demon in order to have authority over the demon and to cast it out. I always thought that was ridiculous in the first place because demons are liars. You don't know if they're telling you the truth anyway. But Jesus, you know, he said, I don't... Now, he didn't allow them to speak for reasons of his messiahship. He didn't want, you know, to get off track. But you don't talk to demons. They, they've got nothing important to say. Just cast them out the way we see the apostles doing in the book of Acts. Just tell them to leave and they will leave. You don't even have to really raise your voice. It's not like cell yell, you know, when you get on your phone, all of a sudden you're talking to them, hello? Yeah, hi, how are you? Everybody's like, 
What's the matter? I just paid $700 for a phone and I have to yell so that people on the other end of the line can hear it. There's something wrong with me. And so you just, Jesus, very nonchalant, cast out demons. If you encounter a demon, you don't want to know its name. In passing, I also point out that these people knew the difference between disease and demon possession. Many liberal scholars and non-believers want to say that the cases of demon possession in the Bible were all just cases of mental illness, but people in the first century were too stupid to know that. Jesus was too stupid to know that he was dealing with a mental illness. He thought it was a demon. Epilepsy had him fooled. I'll tell you, it's, it's amazing what people will believe rather than the clear, simple presentation of the Word of God. It takes a lot more faith to believe what other people believe than to just take God at His Word. And I was thinking about the boys, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. They must have assisted in some way, maybe acting as ushers, seeing to it everybody was patient with no taking, in, uh, taking cuts in line. Or maybe they even organized the worst cases. I mean, this would be like, imagine wherever you live and you, you hear a commotion outside and you open your door and the entire city is out there. And, and these wouldn't have been huge cities, but maybe five, six, seven thousand people are outside your house. And they're wanting to say, hey, I'm demon possessed. I have, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I have a disease. I have a demon. And so the guys had to get involved, I'm sure. Just hang around where ministry is occurring and there will be needs to be met. Just be aware of your, have situational awareness as a Christian and you can minister. Verse 35, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. These guys had been with Jesus only a day. They already lost him. They slept in while Jesus slipped out. Don't you always go fishing early? He said, I'm going to make you become fishers of men. And then early, early in the morning, he was gone spending time with his father. By early in the morning, they're talking about somewhere after 3 a.m. And so this was a, an early rising situation. I don't want to put a burden on anybody. Some of us are morning people. Some of us are night people. Uh, you know, but it, it is a challenge to us to want to spend time with the Lord. And you know, we, we get busy, we fall off of that. Um, maybe, maybe we need to get up a little bit earlier or stay up a little bit later. The lesson here isn't just that prayer is important, although it is. The lesson is that you should rather want to be in fellowship with God than be anywhere else, doing anything else, with anybody else. Even if it means getting up during the early morning uh, and uh, getting by yourself uh, where you're not going to be disturbed. Verse 37, when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, okay, so let's go to the next town that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Lesson number four, if I'm counting right, be led by the spirit and not by the demand of circumstances. And so they, they finally find him after an intense search and they said, hey, everybody's looking for you. They're all over here waiting. He goes, okay, so let's go to the next town because what I really came for is to preach and teach the word of God, not just to hang out here and heal people. Although that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. I need to keep preaching and teaching. Be led by the spirit and not by the demand of circumstances. This is a very hard lesson for us as Christians. 
We have a tendency to see a need and think that that has to be met right now. We need to marshal all of our resources. We need to camp out on that. Uh, and sometimes that's true, but a lot of times it's not true. And God says, no, I want you to stay the course over here. I've got this. You're supposed to be over here doing what I've called you to do. Uh, and if there's anything that we learn from reading the New Testament is that God has very odd, strange ways of doing things so that it will bring glory to him and not to us. And so we just need to be in prayer, waiting on the Lord to know where we want to go. And so Jesus, he'd been all morning in prayer with his father, and he knew that he was to continue his... I, I you know, obviously I'm making this up, speculating, um, but I can imagine Jesus asking his father, Father, do you want me to stay here and continue to heal and deliver these people from demons? And his father saying, no, I want you to stay on task and go to the next town and preach the gospel. And so we need to do the same. I must say there were an awful lot of demons in the gospels. Could it be that in the shadow of his defeat in the wilderness, Satan ramped up his efforts to try and get Jesus off of his mission? I think so. We are not what the Bible or what people call cessationists. We don't believe that gifts of the Spirit have ceased or that the ministry of the Spirit has changed. All that continues as it did in the first century. But having said that, and with that as a context, I don't mind saying that there probably was a lot more demonic activity when Jesus was on the earth. Don't you think that makes sense? If the Son of God, the God-man who's going to die for the sins of the world, the Savior that's promised from the Garden of Eden, if he is now on planet earth and you're the devil, aren't you going to ramp up your demonic efforts to destroy that? And so, it, you know, we're not being anti-Pentecostal by saying, yeah, there was a lot more demonic activity in the first century, or at the time anyway that Jesus was on the planet, uh, because that was the, what was happening. That was the battle that was taking place. Now, there, are people still possessed? Sure. Does it happen all over the world? Sure. Um, but it, it happened more than because of that. Verse 40, now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Leprosy seems mild to us compared to demon possession. I mean, I don't know what you would choose, but if you had the choice between leprosy and demon possession, I, 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 I might go leprosy just because of what demons do to people. But among the Jews, it wasn't like that. This horrible affliction was regarded as distinct from all other physical problems. For one thing, it had a religious significance as a type of sin it was the outward and visible sign of an inward spiritual corruption. And so if you were a leper, it was because you deserved to be a leper. That's what the Jews thought. The leper was considered unclean. It was the very embodiment of impurity. Someone with a demon might be delivered by exorcism, but with leprosy, you were the living dead. There was no known cure for it at that time. Lesson number five, fishing for men requires you have compassion upon the very worst, the very lowest, the most afflicted persons, knowing that the Lord can and wants to make them whole. The Lord's compassion manifested itself in a touch. This would be the first human contact this man had experienced in decades. 
No one touched lepers. Lepers touched no one. It was just kind of an icing on the cake thing in terms of how bad this situation was. Verse 43, he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Just because he was healed, it didn't mean he would immediately be received back into Jewish social life. You know how we joke saying, there's an app for that? The Jews might say, oh, there's a ritual for that. So anything that happened, they had a ritual. And if you were cleansed of leprosy, there was an Old Testament ritual you had to go through of observation and things like that. And so Jesus was saying, hey, just, you know, you're a known leper. And even though you appear completely cleansed now, you're not going to be welcome in Jewish social life until you go through this process. I'm glad that when Jesus touches our hearts today, we are made whole with no need for any ritual to prove we are saved or to complete our salvation. If you're not a Christian here today, we talked about that earlier. Maybe you've never repented of your sin. If you repent of your sin and receive Jesus Christ, if you come forward and pray with us to receive the Lord and confess your sins and, and be born again, we're not at the end of that prayer going to say, now you're almost saved. Sign up for baptism, and when you're baptized, then you'll be fully saved. Or the first time you take communion, or keeping the Sabbath, or becoming a vegetarian, or, or some, something else. No, because you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And, and so I'm so glad that we don't have to do these things anymore. Verse 45 However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. I can't say I blame him. It is interesting to see that being the recipient of a miraculous healing doesn't make you obedient to God. I'm not saying the former leper wasn't saved. I am saying that people for whom God does great things can still ignore him and disobey him. We all think that if a miracle took place, people would get saved and they would start to follow the Lord. This guy did the exact opposite of what Jesus told him to do. He didn't even have a superstition that maybe he would lose his healing. And I can understand his excitement to want to show himself and all, but he ignored Jesus and disobeyed him. Jesus' teaching ministry was being hindered by people seeking signs and wonders. That's a twist on our way of thinking. Certain Pentecostal groups think that emphasizing the word too much gets in the way of signs and wonders. I want to take my cue from Jesus and keep the word our priority. If and when signs and wonders follow its teaching, that's up to the Lord and we can rejoice in that. If you're like me, when you finally get an opportunity to share the gospel, you feel like you have a mouthful of wounds. You just, you get all tongue-tied and you don't know what to say. Remember that the Lord is at work patiently making you become a fisher of men through your lifetime. You are his fisherman or fisherwoman in progress and you have everything you need in that situation, whatever it is, to either be an evangelist or an encourager or a little bit of both. Take his lessons to heart and either cast the net or mend it, but whatever you do, go fish. I asked earlier, what is that going to look like tomorrow? As we go into prayer in this time that we set aside for the Lord, 
Ask him to fill and refresh you in his spirit to show you how today and tomorrow you can fish more effectively. Let's pray.